right, we'll go ahead and I don't have a whole lot. Um, really, the point, it's not a difficult point, but it needs to be ingrained in your mind. So I spent all my time on one point tonight. So that'll hopefully it'll be easy. Um, and you may understand that language there, but act like you don't. And uh, tell me what you can gather about those two words just from the context. Yep. Yep. They're able to fight. <laughs> <laughs> Another interaction. Yep. Anything else? Since they're playing, you can assume that they're young. Yeah, since they're playing, hopefully. Right. They're not robbing Cody in the park. Yeah. Right. Who would probably get enough argument about <laughs> where to go eat on the way home? I'm not going to turn down the monkey bar. So, again, let me reiterate myself. I'm not trying to teach you a new vocabulary, a new language. This is not my goal. Because I'll talk about a lot of words you'll never remember, and I don't want you to remember them. What I am trying to show you is we have become so accustomed to our own language when we read the Bible, it's like we check out and don't pay attention to the context. We read a word, assume that we know the definition of that word, and we read our definition into that. The problem is, I mean, we're in the year 2022. You know, that was written in the first century. And so we're a long ways away from that. And so when we just read the text, we either ignore it because, oh, I know what that word means. Or we take what we think it means and we read it in the Bible. We don't realize all the struggle that goes into trying to find an English word to fit, fit the Greek. And in fact, so we looked at, and I'll, we'll pass through this sometime so the word basar in Hebrew is translated flesh. There's like three words in Greek that they use to try to translate that one word. So going from Hebrew to Greek, the, the Greek language was struggling to find the right word to communicate what the Hebrew text says. So the time you take a Greek word and you try to bring it in the English language, well, you gotta, it's a whole sentence to get to the meaning of the Greek word, Right. And so when we read our English words, we, again, we'll ignore it or we'll read it into what we think it means and we'll just keep right on going in the text and we're not paying attention to context. So it's been super helpful to me. I've not learned Hebrew and I've not learned Greek, but yet I study the words because it makes me pay attention to the context and what they're trying to communicate. It slows me down, okay? And in fact, reading Zimmick's book, Rob can tell you it really slows you down too because his reading level is like, PhD, and I'm like, I don't even know what that word means. I got to go look it up. So that's what we're trying to do. And you may know what Nino and Ninas are. Um, but if you don't, you got to go, well, wait a minute. Let me see if I can figure that out. And you figure out the context, okay? So that's kind of what we're doing. So that being said, when we read, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men. To see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God, they've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. You probably grasp that, but when you begin into looking at this phrase that's communicated through David in the Psalms, you begin to understand there's absolutely no one free 
just based off the physical and spiritual line that we have with Adam, right? Because he takes Adam that we're introduced to in Genesis 1 that falls in Genesis 3. He puts sons or Bainadam in the midst of that and we all we automatically gather, man, we're all in the same boat because we're all under Adam. We're all represented by Adam. A lot of people like to argue, even in Baptist traditions, about what happened in Genesis 3, does it affect us or not? When Adam fell, did that affect me? And people like to say, well, it affected you, then it made you more than likely to sin. No. If, if, if it just made me more than likely to sin, then what took place in the garden is just a picture of what's going to take place in everybody else's life. It's not an illustration. When Adam fell, because I'm a son of Adam, we all fell in, in condemnation because he stood up as our representative. That's why it's so unique in the Bible. Adam was not born of a woman or uh, not born of a natural birth, right? Neither was the Lord Jesus. You've got Adam was the firstborn man. Jesus was the firstborn spiritual man, if you will, right? And so we see these connections as we roll through the text. When you begin to study this, this word, you understand, you know, my father rebelled against God and because he rebelled against God and I'm kin to my father because I'm a son of Adam then the penalty that was placed on him I have to endure and the only person that can set me free from that is my father the Lord Jesus Christ okay my brother all right so again not that I want you to know Anush the Hebrew word but I wanted you to see that there are several different words in Hebrews, and Rob told us last time we were together, they're synonyms. And so he uses several different words, but the nuances are slightly different. And so when he puts a nush and he makes it equal to Adam, we understand that all in the line of Adam are just nothing but dust. We're like flowers or grass. We have a very brief season of life and we're done. That's the physical body. And so... Again, that's communicated to us just by understanding these words. All right, so when we walk into the New Testament, again, we've got to scramble to take a new language and try to apply it to an old language. So the New Testament word in the Greek for the word Adam is anthropos. Again, I'm not trying to teach you that word. But that's the word that's used in the New Testament time and time and time and time and time again. That's a general... Okay, go away. That, my computers want me to talk to it. That's the general term for mankind. It doesn't distinguish between male or female. It's just the generic term for Adam. In fact, in Deuteronomy 8.3, when Adam wrote that, he humbled you, God humbled you, let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that Adam does not live by bread alone. Well, Jesus quotes that passage in the New Testament, in Matthew, in the Gospels, and he answered and says, It was written, Anthropos shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the, out of the mouth of God. See what's going on here? I'm not trying to teach you Adam or Anthropos. I'm trying to show you, as we move from the old to the new, their language has to 
what's the word I'm looking for? has to be an equality of language. It has to be a descriptive equality. They're really trying to connect with what was written down in the Old Testament. Okay? Rob? Okay. You had a funny look on your plate. Sorry, I've, I've jumped to geometry and equivalent. So would you say that they're trying to make sure that the words are equivalent? Yes, absolutely. A grammatical equivalency, if you want a fancy phrase. There you go. I could have, I could have put a ton of context, but again, I wasn't trying to teach you the word. Anthropos is set distinct from everything else in all of creation, namely God. We're, it's, it's never synonymous with God in any way, shape, or form. Matthew 19, 6, 6 Jesus says, So there are no longer two, but one flesh in regard to marriage. What therefore God has joined together, let no man, woman, mankind, human being separate. Okay? So when we see man... Uh, so let me ask you this by doing it the way he does it there where is the emphasis placed in Matthew 19.6 anybody want to take a wild guess it doesn't I mean it's okay I mean are you saying that there's a distinction between God and man no, in regard to the statement. Where's the emphasis being placed, McKelvey? In regards to what? In, in regards to Matthew 19, 6, where is the emphasis placed on the statement? Well, on what God is doing, certainly. What is he doing? Joining, unifying? Yeah, making two people one through marriage. And we don't grasp the depth of that, but every time a man and a woman says, I do, God is present, and he's actually the one doing it. There may be a preacher up there. There may be the law, so to speak. You might sign paperwork, but all of that is grossly insignificant to what God did in that day. Okay? So it's just a way where he says, let no anthropos. Nobody, nobody can touch that. Okay? All right, moving on. Just like in the Old Testament, we had where you had anthropos to say man mankind, the Old Testament had Adam, mankind, but they always distinguished between man and woman when it was necessary. Man was Ish and woman was Shah. I think that was right. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called a Shah because she was taken out of Ish. Same thing in the Greek. There were about 5,000 Aner who ate besides gune and children. And it's interesting, when you get in the New Testament and you see a nair, a nair, it's really hard to say, a nair, when you see that, it's almost always translated husband. Because the, the text is being very specific about this situation. So guess what? When you get to those passages about who can teach and who can preach, does it use anthropos? Not on your life. And there. When you get to deacon or elder, does it use a generic term? Not on your life. It's specific. And there. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, what Sarah and I were talking about the other day, Anair and Gune is all over the place because he's being very particular about the roles of a man and a woman in the church. He's being very particular about the roles of a man and a woman in marriage. Okay? It's very distinct. 
and he wants it to be that way. That's why our culture is erasing all of this business, not only in the home, but in the church. But God made it distinct because they represent something. Okay? And, and again, as you're just reading that, man and woman, you're going to blow right over that. You're like, I know what a man and woman is. But if you'll stop and pay attention, we wouldn't even be having an argument today about certain things. Right? All right, so here's our new word for today. Soma, we're going to stay on this word the whole time. Soma, Greek word, representative of the physical body. Okay? It's just describing the body physically. So we see this in Matthew 5. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole soma to be thrown into hell. Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Physical body. Corpse. Again, physical body. This man went to Pilate and asked for the physical body of Jesus. And Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took down the physical body and wrapped it in a clear linen cloth. Do you realize this verse, this word, could undo a heresy that attacked the church, I guess, in the third century? Because they said that Jesus wasn't a physical being or a man. He was spiritual. He never was physical. And that was the part that flooded in the church. Well, if you know your words and you know your grammar, you can go, uh-uh, I know what the text says. It says he took his physical body down from the cross and they put that physical body in a grave. Okay? It was a corpse. So even though we translate that word there, it's just what that means. All right. Now, what I'm doing is I'm walking myself into a, between a rock and a hard place and I'm going to try to dig myself back out. Okay? So this is Zemek trying to help us understand Soma by saying it's an instrument of human experience. Okay? If you'll notice, Paul uses the word earthen vessel to help us understand our physical body, all right? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, not crushed, perplexed, not despairing, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. What's he talking about? Because if you get this, you understand the word soma. So let's just say you don't know the word body. I wrote it in Greek. Didn't tell you it was body. And so you read through this context, what would you say about that word, Soma? Don't try to think too high. Y'all always make that mistake. Don't shoot the moon. It's just, just living the Christian life. You went theological too high. Representation or something. Do what? Mm, too high. Don't ignore the context. Think simply. If you didn't know what the body, didn't understand that word, 
what could you say about it? It can experience pain. Yeah, it can experience pain. Not only could it experience pain, it can experience all sorts of things, but the experience is in the body. We literally, physically experience things in the soma. Does that make sense? Does that help you reach toward the definition of that word a little better? That's why he says it's the instrument of human experience. Paul calls it an earthen vessel. He's comparing it to a clay pot. And it's the clay pot that suffers, right? It's the physical experience. All right. So, the soma in the New Testament is always in contrast to the spirit. All right? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, in other words, if the spirit's dead, the body's got to be dead. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, the word spirit, we'll talk about some other time, but it's the word pneuma where we get our pneumatic tools. The air tool, that's Greek. That's where we get that, okay? And it's distinguishing there's a difference between body and spirit, okay? Here's another contrast, the body and the soul. Sometimes it's the same, but sometimes there's this distinguished uh, difference. Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the soma, but are unable to kill the suke or the soul, suke, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Okay? Now, do you see my problem I have based off of last week? So this is what I said last week. Look at all these wonderful four words that all mean the same thing. They're synonyms, according to Rob. Jeremiah 17, 5. Thus says the Lord, curses is a geber who trusts in Adam and makes Basar his strength and whose leb turns away from the Lord. What's he saying? If you're not going to trust in God, you're cursed, right? And you can call him Adam, you can call it Basar, you can call it geber, you can call it the heart, whatever. So I made this statement. There is no verse in the Old Testament that divides man into a good part and a bad part. Now, I made myself nauseated on purpose this week. Went to YouTube, pulled up Joel Osteen, listened to less than five minutes of his message as he began to describe the good seed that's present in every human being. He says it doesn't matter how your experience is word, it doesn't matter if you're raised by bad mom and bad daddy, you're raised on the other side of the tracks, you didn't have anything. Doesn't matter if your life is you married a bad spouse, you got physical problems. It doesn't matter about any of that stuff because there's this good seed in you that God wants to bless. And see, what he did there is he divided up the human being. There's a good side, there's a bad side. There's a good seed, and then there's the experiences. And it's interesting because that's very similar to um, church just down the road. There's this good thing in you, okay? Is that consistent with the Old Testament at all? Not at all. There is no division. There is no good side, bad side. There is no blessed side, cursed side. It's just you as a whole, okay? Again, you can undo bad theology with one Bible verse. But this is what I just said. Because the body, physical body, is distinct from the spirit. The physical body is distinct from the soul. See that? 
Now I got a problem because it looks like the New Testament is pointing to some kind of division. There's the physical Tyler and there's the spiritual Tyler. Because what do we always say? What makes me joy, J-O-E-Y, is not this, right? And so we're like, okay, wait now. You said Old Testament, there's no division. In the New Testament, is there a division? So I'm glad that we're walking through this word because Paul deals with this issue in Romans 6. Now, this is the hardest part. Paige got it right. We went through it at home, read through it one time, and she got it. So I, I need you to think about this. We're going to talk about is there a distinction? In other words, is there a fallen part of you and a good part of you that God wants to raise up? Okay? Paul deals with Rome 6. Here we go. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase? Now that we're saved, should we keep on sinning so we can magnify God's grace? He says in verse 2, Are you out of your ever-loving mind? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still keep going in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus who have been baptized into his death? In other words, all those who profess faith in Christ through repentance and belief have been brought out of that. Okay. Therefore, we've been buried with Christ through baptism into death. Here's what he's doing. He's taking the physical thing that we do in baptism and he's showing us a spiritual picture. We've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. Okay? For if we become united with Jesus in the likeness of his death when we repented and believed, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection raised to the newness of life. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, the old man, the sinful man, in order that our body, Soma, of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Tell me about the body. Really? Sinful. Good word. The body is sinful. Y'all agree with that? All right. Any good parts there? Sarah's second saying no. Body is sinful. Okay. That's good, right? But look what he does with body in the next passage. Verse 8. Now if we've died with Christ, meaning we've repented and believed on Jesus, we believe that we shall also live with him, we will be raised from the dead, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that Jesus died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, think of yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your soma, body, to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members of your body as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Tell me about the body. We still sin. We do sin. But tell me about the body here. No 
It's no longer dead in sin. So what would you say about the body now? Is it neutral? Yes. Yes. It's nothing. It's just neutral. It doesn't have to be thrown away. And this is profound if you'll think about this for just a while. And by the way, this undoes a heresy. It's called Gnosticism. The good side of you just needs to break out. And when this old body dies, this good part of you is just going to break out and be released. And so there's this separation. There's this dualism and Gnosticism that still affects, I mean, Buddhism, animism. What's the other one in Thailand? Buddhism. Hinduism. All these false theologies fall by the wayside because there's this supernatural breaking free from the physical existence to get you up into the spiritual realm. Uh, who's the guy? Somebody quoted him the other day, pharmacist friend of mine. Uh, who's the guy that blended Christianity in Buddhism? Oh, he's like renowned. Peace. He's all about peace. Gandhi. Gandhi. Yes, quoting Gandhi. Same thought. You got to break out of this. You got to meditate. This is yoga, by the way. You got to meditate long enough to you free yourself from the physical existence and get yourself into the higher mind, the spiritual realm. That has nothing to do with the text. There's nothing wrong with this. The only thing wrong with this is whether or not I'm going to submit to Christ with this. Am I going to submit my mouth to this? Because this thing is neutral. That's all it is. But before Christ, it was chained to a dead man and I walked in sin. But when you came to faith in Christ, the chains were broke. And now every bit of this from my mouth to my mind, to my hands, to my feet, everything I do and say have been delivered from the dead man. And now it can be used as an instrument of righteousness. Every bit of this. That's crazy. But that's how good the gospel is. And so when God made us a soul, we're still not divided. We just have this vessel. And as, you know, broken down as it is, it's just a vessel. It's just a pot. It's just a clay pot, right? You can grow something bad in it or you can grow something good in it, right? But once, and you have to be redeemed, once we're born again, again, this body is set free in a great sense because now I can do anything to glorify God with it where before I could not. So there's not a bad side of you and a good side of you. No such thing. There's a dead you before Jesus and now there's a live you after Jesus. And now you're free to walk in a way. And so this will be a key, key, key chapter we'll spend Great amounts of time. There's nothing really that helps us with our sin like Romans 6. I mean, now I have to think of myself as I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that. I'm not held in bondage to that. I'm not chained to that. I don't have to do that. I don't have to say that. I'm dead to that. And it begins with our mind because Paul says, consider yourselves. Think of yourselves as I'm. I'm dead to that anymore. I'm not chained to that. Don't have to do that. Don't have to say that. Don't have to think that. Now I can just present myself to God. In fact, Romans 12 is the word soma. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your physical bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Same old soma. 
It's just been bought by Jesus. And now you can present it to God as a pleasing offering. How crazy is that? What was dead and sinful was born again, and now it's pleasing to God. Or it can be. Comments? Here's a review. The predominant uses of the New Testament, this is from Zimic, point to the understanding of the body as a whole. It's the instrument. The body is not the man, for he himself can exist apart from his body, and certainly we do after we pass away from this life. Therefore, it is the vehicle which may be used to serve sin or to glorify God. Just understanding that will untie a ton of false beliefs. Okay? All right. Questions?